Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week, and at the same time, I know all of you are glad today is Friday and are looking forward to enjoying your all's weekend. I know I am, but nonetheless, I am very glad to be back on the air with you guys and being able to share more uh, relevant information to the uh book topic podcast series we're on being the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. You know, I'm sure some of you already, um, after listening to two episodes of this new uh, series, have probably learned more about the Boston Massacre than you did um, previously, whether it had been watching um, on television a documentary from, say, four or five years ago, or even better, and I'm not afraid to admit this, nearly three years ago when I first came on the air, my um, first uh, book topic series was uh, Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials. Now, don't get me wrong, that was a very good series, but I, but I do believe we could all agree that we have learned more about this um, incident than we did, uh, say, three years ago, when we were talking about the trial piece of it. And the reason why I say we're learning more right now is because we're learning about, for one, we're learning a a broader story, but also with regards to a greater um, family history of it. In other words, we're learning bit by bit um, what it was like not only being a local in Boston, that is a native of Boston, but we're learning about those whom are going to uh, eventually make their way into Boston, and we'll learn to um, we'll have to learn how to live with the locals, and over time we'll find uh, maybe not everything in common, but some things in common to where there is enough um, enough of a peace. In other words, enough of a peace to where the ultimate objective was to avoid an all-out confrontation, but. Even the most modified uh, circumstances surrounding peace can't always be assured that those conditions will last forever. At some point down the road, um, a tinderbox might explode or something will uh, cause such a bad spark to where whatever peaceful relations may have once existed under the best modified terms can no longer um go back to that same um, environment after an incident like we have come to learn that what uh, happened on March the 5th, 1770. Now, of course, again, I will remind you all, and we all have to be reminded that what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770 was no isolated incident. It had been coming for probably for some time, but the irony to it it, is that over a three-week course, that could be it could be fair to say that over a three week course, the straw that ultimately broke the camel's back is what ultimately occurred on the night of March fifth. Other incidents took place leading up to that final incident. So we have to keep in mind that um, in this study, yes, an unfortunate incident may have happened, and yes, it would probably be fair to say that as we progress along, not trying to give it away, but I think we just need to be reminded that as um, time goes along and uh, based upon that uh, sketch that Paul Revere did, he interpreted it one way, John Adams did another, 
two sides to the story, classic formation, what we will come to the realization is that um, just because one sees a, a picture one way and another sees it as an opposite, we do have to come to some consensus that, hey, while yes, there are two sides to the story, what about other sides to the story? And that is the family perspective of it. So in this uh, segment that we will be discussing, we will learn whether or not um, things started out good in the post-Seven Years' War era. In other words, do many um, colonists feel good about the current state of affairs in the post-Seven Years' War era? We'll also learn about how quickly the relations begin to start um, souring. Not radically, but they start souring 101, and at some point before 1770, it probably will go above 101. We'll also learn um, what about um, how uh, people um, got their voices out in England. Because what I found interesting in, when having read this book is that the way many people in England got their voices out over a concern or concerns kind of resembled how many people went about doing it in uh, colonial times. And perhaps it could be somewhat similar to how people get their words out, not so much their words out, but how they get their uh, causes out in today's time as well, regardless of where people are living in the world. So let's get the show on the road and be prepared for our, for our first question in this next uh, episode to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. Were Britain's subjects being her 13 North American colonies, happy to be part of something bigger, or I should say grander, given the Seven Years, given the seven years War's outcome benefited the mother country, being England. What do you all think? Well, believe it or not, it's always easy to assume that after the Seven Years' War ended, that it would be easy to assume that after the Seven Years' War ended that uh, maybe not everybody was happy. But it turns out that a majority of, of Britain's uh, subjects in the colonies were in fact happy. Well, for starters, uh, Britain's subjects had thrived economically during the Seven Years' War, which in essential meant the British Army had an abundance of provisions provided for them by merchants whose goods were intended to be of use during wartime purposes. So, in other words, you know, when we think of merchants, you know, we tend to think of them, it's easy to think of them in colonial times as just selling stuff, you know, left and right that's, you know, for everyday use. Well, I don't think that that should be ruled out. But we should also keep in mind that merchants, especially those in Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, being that they are along um, coastal fronts, it could be fair to say that those cities are in need of good. And there's not so much that they're in need of goods, but they have goods to sell in times of war or in times of conflict because the goods they're selling are uh, revolve around a wartime economy. These goods could help um, 
serve as a means of um, brokering alliances, um, perhaps with various Indian tribes, depending on uh, what side um, Indian tribes might um, take a side with. But at the same time, you know, these goods aren't just, they're not like the equivalent of, you know, going to a grocery store, for example. But the goods themselves have a fundamental purpose, and that is for uh, times of war. However, now that we're in a post-seven years uh, war era, I have to wonder, the goods that were heavily in demand throughout this war, are, are they going to be in the same kind of demand in a post-seven years war era? That's something we might want to think about. You know, what was in demand once may not be in demand a couple of years down the road, or let alone in a, in a few months from now. So, so but, but, but back to our first, uh, the first part of the question was that, um, yes, uh, that for starters, Britain's subjects did thrive economically during the war, which did, in essential, mean that the British Army did have an abundance of provisions that were given to them by the merchants, whose goods were intended to be of use during uh, the war, but let alone, hence, a wartime economy. The Seven Years' War was not just a war, but one where um, colonists profited heavily. Hey, there's nothing wrong with profiting heavily, and that also can be attributed to Britain's army protecting her subjects, being that of the uh, 13 colonies, along the frontiers in thwarting off Indian raids. Frontiers like Ohio Territory, what we might even think of as present-day West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, parts of uh, present-day Tennessee, folks, uh, even Indiana, just to give you some examples. Now, the British defeat of French forces meant not having to worry about European ra European rivals, I should say, competing for territory, along with removing certain peoples considered as a threat to the newly enhanced empire. 1765, for uh, the Massachusetts colony, a new fellow um, became the Massachusetts Speaker of the House. His name was James Otis, Jr., now, James Otis, um, along with his father, are very uh, prominent um, individuals in the greater uh, Massachusetts community. And for those of you who were with me when we uh, discussed American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger, James Otis um, was a part of that infamous uh, Sons of Liberty group. Now, I should maybe I should say. Um, a part of the well-known group uh, being called the Sons of Liberty. Uh, James Otis was a very um, outspoken individual. He never shied away from a, a conflict or confrontation, I should say. But James Otis, um, in 1765, or I should say James Otis Jr., has become the new Massachusetts Speaker of the House. But at this time in 1765, folks, uh, James Otis Jr., is very thrilled about how things are. He's also thrilled about the fact that Canada is coming under British domain. He's very convinced that the Seven Years' War helped make Britain and her subjects, being the 13 colonies, a much closer family. Everyone is now under one roof. 
and everyone by being under one roof has some form of opportunity to prosper even if there are some disparities that exist in other words yes you might one could be of middling rank he may not be up there obviously with the gentry but at the same time you know if if john smith being of middling rank status owns i don't know say 50 acres or more of land he's got a chance to prosper it may not be on the same uh, level as someone who owns 5,000 acres of land or who owns five or six um, ships for um, for business purposes. But for James Otis Jr., he sees he's he's got this grand envision, like many other Bostonians and just uh, Americans uh, living under the um, under the crown. They all have this assumption right now that okay. In this post-Seven Years' War era, a lot of good things are going to evolve. Perhaps this could be a, a, an era of good feelings. I say it's wishful thinking, but right now, Britain's subjects, they don't know any better, which might be a good thing, but at the same time, they also don't know what might be lying in store. But I do know, and it will be mentioned here momentarily, that something did come a year after the the Seven Years' War ended, the year being um, the one that was in between 1763 and 1765. Hold on uh, tight here, because that we will talk about uh, that um, matter here in a moment. Now, uh, James Otis Sr., who is the father to James Otis Jr., he openly felt that Britain, that Britain's colonies most importantly her people, were entitled to the same rights and privileges as all other people, or I should say individuals, classified as British citizens. So in other words, I may not live in England, but I ought to still be entitled to the same rights, and I ought to be treated in a manner that I would want to be treated in, in the same way that those living 3,000 miles across the ocean in England are uh, treated regardless of their status. Well, I can't uh, blame James Otis uh, Sr. for having this uh, grand envision. But his grand envision fell apart. Did you hear that, folks? His grand envision fell apart once Parliament began enacting measures requiring something that, you know, still exists today. It's probably existed since the beginning of time. But Parliament um, does something that, um, not it, this won't be the first instance. It, there will be multiple instances. But for James Otis Sr., his grand envision, perhaps of a utopian relationship between Britain and her subjects, most notably being the 13 colonies, start showing signs of falling apart once Parliament began enacting measures requiring taxes be placed upon paying for the presence of troops not only in Canada, but elsewhere, but doing so at the expense of not getting consent from those whom Parliament governed, being the colonists. 
So I'm beginning to wonder if uh, a dilemma is going to, if there's going to be more than one dilemma. In other words, it's one thing for Parliament to tax or to impose taxes. The other question is going to be, did Parliament get the proper consent from her subjects whom, uh, whom she was governing? Well, we can certainly find out more here um, in our next um in our next um, question here, money, I should point out here, uh, money is not going to be coming from Parliament to pay for the British Empire administration. North America is still um, in need of uh, troops, and not just in need of troops, but uh, greater uh, troop numbers. Given the current practice behind moving entire regiments within the greater empire has become more uh, burdensome. You know, most people probably never would have thought that the uh, practice behind moving entire regiments within uh, the greater empire had in fact become a burden. But you know, you can't blame Parliament for wanting to try new strategies. I mean, a, a new strategies that in their eyes... It's not so much uh, gaining notoriety, but Parliament, um, or I should say Britain, Britain's facing massive deficits, folks. I mean, they probably, if I'm not mistaken, I had read somewhere where their numbers were at least 150 um, million uh, pounds in debt after the uh, Seven Years' War ended. So Britain's treasury is drained. They're in the red, being a deficit. And they're just not in ordinary 101 deficits. They're in mass deficits. So they feel that um, perhaps her subjects below should help out with um, paying for the costs, not only from the Seven Years' War, but costs that would be designed um, to help um, generate revenues for the British government, revenues that could um, you know, help... Um, help modify the current situations involving, um, uh, what do you call it, involving the uh, presence of um, not having to um, heavily burden um, regiments. In other words, try to find uh, cost, better cost practices um, that would not involve having to move entire regiments within the greater empire, but perhaps also uh, generate revenue for other uh, important expenses, most important of all, to maintain uh, proper defenses along the frontiers. So um, I mentioned about a particular year between 1763 and 1765 uh, being that of uh, 1764. Now going into 1764, Parliament came up with another unique solution. Parliament sought to raise taxes on colonial trade as a new beginning. So in 1764, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, which placed a tax on sugar and molasses brought into the colonies. Okay, so if sugar and molasses is coming into the colonies, that would be uh, considered imported goods. Well, there is one particular region in colonial America that is... Um, that is opposed to this. I don't know about the southern colonies or uh, the middle uh, colonies, but the New England colonies are totally against um, the Sugar Act. 
largely in part because it's not so much the consent piece, although consent is an important issue. The problem is that um, for the New England colonies, their, um, their economies are going to take a, um, a, a big hit with, this, uh, with the tax involving the Sugar Act. So the, the economies throughout New England are um, heavily impacted, most notably um, Boston, Massachusetts, whom had been heavily dependent upon sugar and molasses to make rum. Okay, so if they're making sugar and rum, are they importing or exporting? They're exporting. And whom are they exporting to? They're not exporting to England. No, they're actually exporting this um, rum to um, down south into the, into the Caribbean um, region, most notably the West Indies. And they were doing so at a, at a much cheaper rate than having to go through um, England. But I do know that the Sugar Act reduced revenue from six pence to three pence. So, given that uh, the Sugar Act um, did have uh, an impact, or negative impact, on the New England colonies, it marked the first time that Parliament imposed a tax on the American colonies as a means of collecting money to pay for the presence of troop, troop regiments pardon me, still present in North America, as well as paying off ex existing Seven Years' War debt. But colonists were more so upset over the fact that they had no proper representation within Parliament's halls. Okay, so it was one thing to impose this tax, but for the colonists, they didn't have anybody, they, didn't, they weren't able to send people, or I should say delegates, 3,000 miles across the ocean to speak on their behalf and say, hey, the Joneses, the Smiths, they don't like this tax. Did, did you all get their consent? Uh, no. Okay, well, if you didn't get their consent, then why are you passing it? And, of course, Parliament will say, well, why do we need to get their consent when they're 3,000 miles across the ocean? They should know automatically that they are subjects of the crown, and if they don't do as they're told, well, you know, we can always take uh, matters into our own hands by imposing other uh, drastic measures on their uh, livelihoods in terms of their business. So... Yes, the colonists are upset over the fact that they had no proper res representation within Parliament's halls. Now, the measure that, um, that was enacted, being this uh, Sugar Act, it did, in fact, reduce smuggling. It did reduce the overall number of illegal um, goods being brought into America. And illegal meaning that, they, that there was not... Um, that the uh, trade agreements between the colonies and Britain had been violated. So, like, take that infamous Dutch tea, where is it getting, where is it coming from? It's not coming from England, it's coming from uh, Holland at a cheaper rate than, say, the, the tea that the British are trying to, um, that the British will eventually sell being um, from the East India Company. Now, uh, I felt, I thought it was interesting to note that the, um, the three um, colonies that felt the biggest impact. It just so happens that um, one of them be was from New England, and it turns out that there were two from the middle colonies that were um, heavily impacted by uh, the Sugar Act. 
The, the New England co colony was obviously Massachusetts, but the two middle colonies were Pennsylvania and New York. It could be fair to say that if you lived in Philadelphia and lived in New York City, that you would have uh, been negatively impacted by this measure, given how much uh, commerce is coming in and out of those um, port cities, and the same for uh, Boston, and uh, for port cities north of Boston like Marblehead and uh, Salem. Now, if the Sugar Act produced mass grumblings, which it did, the Sugar Act is already uh, 101, 101 conflict. 101, in a sense, you know, we're testing the waters here. We're not trying to test the waters on purpose. We're testing the waters to say to our subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean, look, you all want protection. You all want assistance. We're raising money. Help us out. Don't, don't, um, don't act like a bunch of ungrateful um, jerks. That's coming, you know, from a parliamentary perspective. So if the Sugar Act produced mass grumblings, what law would go beyond grumblings resorting in riotous activity? How about that infamous dreaded Stamp Act? The Stamp Act, whose focus centered upon all things, well, from a twofold approach, number one, the Stamp Act, whose focus uh, centered upon uh, all things paper, or I should say official papers, including means of paying, including the means of paying for British military troops throughout the 13 colonies after the Seven Years' uh, War ended. Britain, Britain's subjects uh, never were concerned about a French invasion, but deep down they felt as though they had already paid their share of the war's costs. So in other words, you know, we weren't sitting back and letting Parliament pay for everything. We did our part, which was good. But sometimes, um, even after a conflict has ended, it doesn't mean you just sit, can sit back and say, well, we did our part, you know, we'll, we'll let the people above us, you know, take care of the rest of it, even if it means having they're having to either drain their treasury or um, stay in the red for as long as necessary. I'm beginning to wonder if over time, King George III might decide to actually call his subjects, being the 13 colonies, a bunch of ungrateful subjects. I'm beginning to wonder, over time, taxes surrounding the Stamp Act were placed upon such papers, or official papers, I should say, like newspapers, pamphlets, legal filings, bail bonds, college diplomas. Man, I can't imagine having been in college at this time and all of a sudden, you know, what if I don't get my college diploma? All because of, of Parliament's new <coughs> legislation that um, is requiring a tax on all uh, paper-related items. It's kind of odd, to say the least, now all of a sudden. So, Yes, not only uh, bail bonds, college diplomas, but to playing cards. The stamped paper, okay, so this, we're not just talking basic um, computer paper, folks, but this is stamp paper. The stamp paper meant that the Crown's officials, being the tax collectors, would gather a tax for all things paper, such as liquor licenses, BOLs. I'm sure some of you are thinking, BOLs, what does that mean? Well, 
That's a abbreviation for bill of ladings. And I know bill of ladings very well because I work in the shipping industry, or I should say trucking. For those of you who aren't familiar with what um, a bill of lading is, it's a legal document that states where a load is shipping from, or in other words, originating from, and where it is delivering to. The shipper, of course, is where it's um, picking up from or departing from. The consignee, it's another name for customer, for where it's delivering to. And if you'd like, for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, 101 shipping, I'll tell you, I'll give you two good examples. If a shipment is prepaid, that's where the shipper is paying for it. If it's collect, that's where the consignee, the receiver, is responsible for paying the bill. Now, we must remember, folks, there were no such things as wire transfers in the 18th century, so we don't have... Um, modern-day credit cards either, too. So, um, you know, so in other words, you, if you want to um, establish a business with a merchant, you need to have uh, credit. Just like we need to have credit today in order to be able to obtain a loan or to be able to, um, or to, be able to have uh, credit uh, in terms of uh, other essential uh, personal uh, matters. Now, other than bills of ladings, how about um, the bill of ladings? It wasn't so much where the loads were shipping from and delivering to, but the bill of ladings would list the goods per each ship's cargo's hold to uh, newspaper ads for where this uh, stamped paper. Now, on what date was the Stamp Act to go into effect before 1765 ended? November 1st. November 1st. That means uh, after November 1st, there's only, um, say, 60 more days left in 1765. So even before 1765 ends, there is still going to be um, opposition. There's still going to be uproar. There, there could be violence for all, it, for, all it's, for all said and done. Now, one fellow whose name I didn't know until having read this book, most people probably don't know about them, and, and that's okay. There are a lot of average Joes during this time who uh, did contribute uh, for the better, both big and small. This fellow's name is John Rowe, who is a Boston merchant. He viewed the Stamp Act as political and financial troublesome. He had to decide prior to November 1st if he would pay the tax on all bill of ladings for, per ships owned along with legal papers required to collect outstanding debts. Or his other option would be to simply defy all orders. So come September of 1765, John Rowe, along with James Otis Jr. and Mr. Samuel Adams, wrote a letter to Parliament expressing their concerns about the Stamp Act's future negative implications but most of all, existing loyalty within the greater British Empire. In other words, believe it or not, even in the middle of mid to late 1765, John Rowe, even James Otis Jr. and Samuel Adams, they don't, as much as they don't like what's, what's going to happen with the Stamp Act, they are hoping that Parliament will come to their senses and realize that, well, 
maybe we made a mistake by um, by passing this legislation just like we did with the one the year before with the Sugar Act and realizing, well, you know, if we want to maintain good relations with our subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean, maybe we need to do a little bit more about engaging them in proper consent. I'm not sure how you could do that with 3,000 miles across the ocean, but the bottom line is, is that this is what uh, James Otis Jr., Samuel Adams, and John Rowe are hoping for. They're hoping that this letter, given that they have expressed every ounce of concern about what implications the Stamp Act uh, could um, produce, they know that, they, that, that the um, results are going to be negative. But, they, but what they want is for there to be some form of peace within the British Empire still. They, want, they don't mind being subjects to the crown, but they want to be treated properly. They want to be treated like true Englishmen. They want to be given proper consent. Because without proper consent, how can there be a formal relationship? Without proper consent, everything might as well be void. Many Bostonians began to start feeling as if they had become devalued regarding the matter, matter over taxation, given the Stamp Act, like the Sugar Act of 1764, did not involve, as I said a moment ago, and I'll say it here again, proper consent methods to fair representation. Mid-August 1765, John Rowe witnessed protesters on the streets hanging an effigy, and for those of you um, who don't know what an effigy is, that's um, a paper model. Effigies have been used um, a lot, not just in, say, over the past 100 years or 50 years. Effigies go back even before um, Europeans came uh, to the New World establishing um, settlements. So John Rowe has witnessed uh, protesters come mid-August of 1765. He has witnessed protesters on the streets hanging an effigy, being a paper model of a Massachusetts distributor designated to assign and collect paper documents. The crowd of protesters, if they, were, if they went as far as hanging an effigy of the Massachusetts distributor, they also went as far as engaging in acts of damage to his home. And the day after the effigy burning incident, this crown representative, or let alone tax collector, formally resigned his post. He must have been that terrified, folks, knowing that his presence alone could create such hostility. Hostility that went beyond 101. You know, it's one thing to perform your job, but if you can't perform your job peacefully knowing that people are going to hound you left and right, then maybe it's time to step aside and and understand where the colonists are coming from and maybe go as far as taking an oath saying that, hey, you won't harass the, the colonists no more, you won't harass the locals, and if you agree not to harass the locals, then you will be forgiven of previous um, attempts of um, injustice. And believe it or not, folks, there were a handful of tax collectors who were forced to um, swear oath against the country they were representing, being England, 
and by swearing an oath, it meant that they were no longer going to take partake in uh, activities of being a tax collector. So we should keep in mind that uh, there were multiple um, tax collectors who resigned uh, their posts largely out of fear, not only for themselves as individuals, but if they were married and had families, I could see how they had to take the well-being of their families into consideration. Was the practice of rioting a common norm in Britain's political atmosphere? It just so happens, folks, that uh, the practice of rioting was, in fact, a common norm in Britain's uh, political atmosphere. And it, one reason why that was the case was because the majority of political decisions were made behind closed doors, which meant that when Parliament was in session, its doors weren't open for public viewing. In other words, you know, everyday people could not come into the halls of Parliament and watch their um, legislators debate over um, over bills that were, you know, brought before the floor uh, to discuss to, whether it was for support or an opposition or trying to reach a compromise on. Parliament uh, closed its doors to the public. I'm, I'm wondering if they closed their doors to the public because out of fear that if, um, that if a good number of people showed up, they would start uh, hollering, they would start hissing, chanting obscenities, perhaps behaving uh, ungentlemanly, or, or simply perhaps behaving in a manner that was unbecoming to being, um, a to being uh, what a mature person ought to be. So in other words, perhaps elected officials in Parliament didn't have time to listen to people's uh, grumblings, moaning, whining, while... Um, Official business, official business was going on in the chambers. After all, maybe it's fair to say that even uh, government in the 18th century needed to function properly without um, any unforeseen disturbances. Now, I should also point out, too, that um, regardless of people's class status, many Britons expressed political feelings by engaging in street demonstrations, which the government did allow, but if the demonstrations got out of control, if the demonstrations did get out of control, then mayors, including magistrates, often requested government assistance in sending out troops to quell current political unrest. So you could... Um, you had the right to um, assemble, petition. You probably did have the right to uh, express your opposition to um, something that you um, didn't think would be a, a good law for Parliament to enact. But it might be fair to say that Parliament um, had established boundaries on how you would go about um, getting your uh, frustration or your voices out. In other words, it would probably be fair to say that Parliament would have forbidden anyone to have uh, taken bricks and thrown them into a shopkeeper's window or a merchant's uh, building facility. If so, um, 
that could uh, lead to, um, say, a couple of pounds uh, in terms of money for fine, or even worse, maybe a, a, a whipping in public. I know that doesn't sound nice, but sometimes that, a lot of times that was done as a means of deterring others from not uh, making the same mistake as the individual who, uh, who was getting whipped had unfortunately done so. So keep in mind that, yes, it would have been one thing to um, assemble and petition properly, but once you uh, got out of control, or I should say out of line, then um, there had to be other matters uh, taken into um, consideration. Had Matthew uh, Chambers and the rest of his uh, troop mates within the 29th Regiment of Foot um, faced hostile crowds prior to departing Ireland in June of 1765? Yes, in the summer of 1763, the 29th Regiment of Foot under Captain Pierce Butler's command quashed a riot involving large numbers of protesters whose sizes, or whose size, I should say, was estimated within the thousands. Can't imagine putting down, you know, it's one thing to put down a riot where you might have 10 or 30 protesters, but putting down a, a riot where you've got thousands of protesters say over a thousand, that's daunting to say the least. Officers and soldiers from the 29th Regiment were very familiar to dealing with rioters versus confronting enemy soldiers. Francis Bernard, whom was Massachusetts's royal governor, being that he was an elected official, he was not one who was hesitant in calling out the presence of troops when needed. He was Massachusetts's royal governor since 1760, the same year that uh, George III became um, the official uh, king of England when he was uh, coronated um, as king of England in uh, late 1760. Now, as for Governor um, Francis Bernard, his relationship with Massachusetts's people was very tense. It never really had a true moment of peace, even uh, in the midst of the Seven Years' War, which I thought was a bit surprising. August of 1765 saw two major protests occur, including an unruly crowd breaking down sections of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson's home. Governor Bernard retreated to Castle William, or what was known as Castle Island, for safety reasons. That's how bad it was getting, folks. While Governor Bernard remained at Castle William, he comprised a letter to General Thomas Gage, who had become the new chief commander of North American uh, military forces. Governor Bernard uh, requested in this letter an immediate presence of troops in Boston with the purpose of restoring order. Well, in September of 1765, one month later, General Gage did agree to send troops to Boston, only for Governor Bernard, listen to this one, folks, only for Governor Bernard to turn the request down. Now, of course, this, you know, we don't have email or we don't have texts or we don't have phones, but it's just interesting to think that here Governor Bernard is demanding the presence of troops, but now all of a sudden he's turning it down. Why is he turning it down? Because within a month after the um, 
protests had occurred, Governor Bernard began to see signs of improving. And, well, it is nice to know that there are signs of improvement within the town of Boston. However, you have to wonder, are these signs of improvement uh, short-term? In other words, are they going to be in the same state of uh, improved status six months from now? There's no guarantee. So for Governor Bernard, his dilemma was one where he required approval from the governor's council to request more troops. And he knew that there was a strong likelihood that even the governor's council would deny him the presence of troops. But for Governor Bernard, what he really wanted more than anything else was a simple quick fixer where large uh, regiments came over and removed all further burdens on his own end. Such wishful thinking, to say the least. But even if um, you got three or four regiments of troops in, you're still dealing with the town folks whose population is under 20,000, but it's just above 15,000, being that of uh, 16,000, that is for Boston. What became worthy to celebrate after March 18, 1766, throughout Britain's 13 North American colonies? And this is breaking news, folks. It's exciting, but it's, it might as well be breaking news. Well, it just so happens on March 18, 1766, Parliament repealed the Stamp Act. Of course, her subjects, 3,000 miles across the ocean, don't know that just yet, but they will eventually soon find out that this um, infamous act that uh, has caused so much um, unrest, most notably in Boston, is, has been repealed. Uh, Parliament's uh, repeal of this hated Stamp Act, while yes, it does cause for reason to celebrate, there are still um, issues. In other words, there are unresolved issues over how to collect money for such expenses like maintaining troop presence where it was needed. So, okay, we've we've repealed this act, but, you know, if you're a member of parliament, you still have to think to yourself, how else are we going to get money? How else are we going to get money, and how are we going to be able to enforce the law to where our subjects below are going to support us and pay for their share of the costs and stop acting like ungrateful children? The winter of 1766 saw more uh, people, or I should say personnel, I take it back, within uh, the British military make their way into Halifax, Nova Scotia. Five being the number of regiments were due to arrive into North America in the year of 1766. The 14th Regiment was one of five units whom spent time they were one of the five uh, regiments due to come into North America in the year of 1766. This regiment was one of five units whom spent time in Gibraltar from 1752 to 1759, Gibraltar being located around the Iberian Peninsula just south of Spain. Uh, this regiment stayed in England throughout the Seven Years' War. I think it's fair to say that we should all probably know by now that when uh, British troops did arrive into America, they all weren't coming from England. But it is fair to say that 
that we all had this assumption for a number of years that every that all British troops departed from, say, London or Bristol or Plymouth and port um, cities and just uh, came 3,000 miles across the ocean and made their way into Massachusetts and other colonies. <laughs> Uh, that's not how it worked. Wishful thinking, though, to say the least. Whereas the 29th Regiment, being that of the, the regiment that Matthew Chambers was in, had experience in putting down riotous activity, the 14th Regiment had none. April of 1766 saw Britain's War Office Department place the 14th Regiment on alert, or I should say standby, Notice, as orders were now centered upon departing to America. Come June 30th, 1766, three months after Parliament repealed that infamous Stamp Act, the full 14th Regiment, including their families, boarded onto four cargo, or I should say freighter ships, from Portsmouth, England, where they would, where they would go um, across the ocean to uh, Nova Scotia, believe it or not. Now, whom was the 14th Regiment's uh, commander? His name was Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple. I'll spell that last name, D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L, Dalrymple. <laughs> Odd last name, unique to say the least. Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple is 30 years old. He has 10 years of military service under his record. He fought against the Spanish in their attempted invasion of Portugal a few years uh, before um, before uh, coming into um, this new uh, line that he's in. It's interesting that he did make a mistake upon his new commanding post, and it involved military wives. <laughs> like the 29th Regiment, the 14th Regiment also brought over more than the standard number of 60 women per unit from uh, Europe. Mid-August 1766, the 14th Regiment did arrive to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where its members met those from the 29th um, Regiment afoot for the first time. Now, I found this interesting that there was one officer from the 14th Regiment whom had a uh, not-so-good reputation that uh, traveled with them 3,000 miles across the ocean. However, this officer... Um, this officer was not um, was not a sergeant. He was not a lieutenant, but he was a captain. However, the his name was Captain Brabazon O'Hara. It's an interesting name. So yes, Captain Brabazon O'Hara had um, engaged in a confrontation with a sergeant. The sergeant had been caught uh, drunk, or I should say, intoxicated while on duty. The um, captain saw the actions as being very um, improper, um, unbecoming, and so he felt it was necessary to uh, take matters into his own hands by um, whipping the sergeant, not just you know three or five times, but whipping him over 50 times. If you whip someone about 25 or 50 times, um, in this case, with the uh, British officer, it's going to leave a lot of bad um, scars on the, on the on your back. 
It could even result in death, depending on how bad the wounds are. So Captain Brabazon O'Hara um, sadly um, whipped the sergeant to death. And by whipping the sergeant to death, the sergeant himself died a few days later. The incident involving the sergeant, as unfortunate as it was, it wasn't the biggest issue behind the story. The sad part is, is that Captain Brabazon O'Hara got acquitted of the whipping of the, not whipping, folks, the whipping incident. How could you get acquitted of whipping someone to death, to where they died? But if that was bad enough, how about a little more drama here? Uh, the Secretary of State had ordered an execution for the atrocity committed, but O'Hara avoided the death sentence. He somehow avoided it, folks. Given that he avoided it, it didn't mean he could start over and get a new clean slate. No matter where he went, the incident alone never left him. So it was a paper trail. It was... um. You know, he may have not gotten branded for, um, for how he treated the sergeant, but everybody knew what he had done before, and no matter where it went, it, w it always had potential to come up or simply just bite him in the back. Now, the repeal of the Stamp Act, as I said earlier, it did um, come as a um, sign of celebration and relief to the um, colonists. And so, yes, the repeal of the Stamp Act saw many of Britain's colonists celebrate with unlimited festivities, especially in Boston, given no army regiments were stationed. You know, it's one thing to have toasts, uh, balls. It's one thing to have, you know, when I say balls, like uh, dance uh, festivities. It's one thing just to have some nice formal occasions that center around uh, cele the celebration of uh, the Stamp Act repeal. However, uh, celebrations over the Stamp Act alone, in terms of its repeal, would not last forever, as it would only be a short matter of time until troop regiments, or I should say until British troop regiments, made their presence in Boston be known. So it's one thing to celebrate, but celebrations alone don't last forever. What I do know is that we have uh, certainly covered a lot of ground in this episode, but then again, we've always seemed to cover a lot of ground, regardless of podcast uh, book topic series we're on, no matter how many episodes, we're always covering ground. That's good, because if we're not covering ground, then what can we show? That Then we really can't show anything. We can't show that we did anything relevant. So the bottom line is, yes, we are always covering ground, we're always making strides. We're always learning something new that we didn't know before. And for that, we are better off. Well, when I'm on the air again next time, we're going to learn about what life is like in Nova Scotia. Um, just to give you a hint, uh, we're going to learn about what life is like in Nova Scotia for the, um, for the regiments that are already there. We'll also learn whether or not some uh, troops depending on their, their rank within the British uh, military, have the opportunity to travel outside of Nova Scotia. We'll also learn if Parliament has any other tricks up its sleeve, given, they've, um, they, given that they're at a, a standstill with not being able to see, um, 
given that Parliament's in a standstill, they haven't been able to see any kind of um, relevant um, yields based upon the tax uh, measures that they have uh, passed, only to have them be repealed. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys. And no matter where you all live in the world, including in the United States, have a, a great weekend, and I will look forward to being back on the air again next time. Uh, continue to stay safe and take care.